Welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talked to Angela Brandt, who is the president of the Ontario Autism Coalition. You had forgotten about autism, hadn't you? Back in the early days of the Ontario government under Doug Ford, it looked like that if there was one hill that the new administration might die on, it was the autism file. After unwinding the autism program introduced by the previous Liberal government, the new PC regime made a series of changes that were purportedly meant to give parents more autonomy in seeking autism aids for their kids, but it only had the effect of uniting the entire autism lobby against them. And then the pandemic happened, and all of healthcare, from emergency to long-term care, were thrown under the microscope. So where are we now on the autism file? That is the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. Doing the TikTok of the autism fight in 2019 could easily eat up about 10 to 15 minutes of airtime here. But let's just say that the Ontario's PC government had a very PC idea. Give parents a lump sum annually and let them find the care that they need. The problem is that some children on the spectrum need a lot more care than a small annual stipend could provide. And that fact riled up parents who were already used to years of struggle and toil to get government assistance. They were angry, and that anger threatened to upset the agenda of the government that by that point wasn't even a year old. Other scandals would come and go over those first couple of years, but autism was almost consistently a thorn, which is why three different government ministers have been tasked to manage it over the last four years. Meanwhile, Advocacy for the parents of children with autism has been very consistent, and one of the most prominent groups fighting for those parents is the Ontario Autism Coalition. Angela Brandt is the president of the Ontario Autism Coalition, and like a lot of activists, her activism started at home. Her son Misha is on the spectrum, and she's worked for years to get the best treatment for him, and also to get the best help for all kids with autism in Ontario. Not an easy task because no one person with autism has the exact same needs and challenges as another person with autism, which is part of what makes developing autism policy and funding so difficult. Having said that, the issues, which were once so omnipresent, all but disappeared when COVID hit in March 2020. And while no one was looking, the waitlist for autism therapy crossed 53,000 people. So this week on the Guelph Politicast, we're going to put some light back on autism by talking to Angela Brandt. We will talk about the fight for autism funding over the last four years, the successes and setbacks for autism advocacy groups over that time, and how the pandemic affected both the kids and the advocacy on their behalf. We will also talk about whether any of the parties have a good autism policy on their platform, how candidates can best earn the vote of people worried about spending on autism, and why one party in particular should be very concerned if there are a lot of single-issue voters around autism policy and funding. And finally, we will discuss the effect of government changes over the last four years, the difficulty advocating when the government minister keeps changing, and how the coalition is hoping to change minds and make autism a priority before June 2nd. So I caught up with Angela Brandt last week via Zoom. So Angela Brandt, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me and thank you for covering such an important issue. It seems like the current government doesn't seem to be interested in the autism community. So thank you for showing that interest. Of course. Um, you know, you kind of set up my my first question. I'm going to borrow 
something from an, uh, something an American president said during an, a different campaign 40 years ago. Uh, I'm going to adjust it a bit for, for this situation, though. Are the parents of children with autism better off today than they were four years ago? Four years ago? Definitely not. Um, four years ago, uh, the, the children in Ontario had access to an Ontario autism program, which was redeveloped uh, by the former government, the previous liberal government. And although the program was not perfect, um, it was a truly needs-based program. And, you know, as I'm president of the Ontario Autism Coalition and the Ontario Autism Coalition fights for equitable access to autism supports. And four years ago, that was much more a reality than it is now. Can you explain, um, when you say there was needs-based uh, funding and programming, uh, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, so it's, it's a term that we throw around, but um, it, it, you know, it, it does need some clarification, especially for people outside of the community. So, you know, one of the sayings in the community is if you've met a child, if you've met one child with autism, you've met one child with autism. <laughs> <laughs> because the needs of our kids are so unique and every child requires a different level of support. There's no lumping kids into specific categories because one child may need speech therapy and occupational therapy and may not require behavior therapy. And one child may not benefit from speech therapy at all and requires intensive uh, ABA, which is applied behavior analysis. It's, uh, it's really the gold standard for behavior therapy when it comes to children mm -hmm. with autism. <clears throat> so when we talk about needs-based support, we're talking about a clinician being able to assess our children and really clinically prescribing what our children need. So is it, you know, two hours of speech therapy a week plus 20 hours of ABA or, you know, five hours of occupational therapy and 10 hours of speech therapy? Like it's, it's very, very unique. Um, and it's, it all comes with a cost. You know, speech therapy is extremely expensive. Occupational therapy is very expensive. Um, ABA, although not as expensive as the other therapies uh, by, per, per hour, um, it's often the intensity is quite high. Like when my son was very young, my son was diagnosed with very high needs. When he was quite young, he required 40 hours a week of ABA. And, you know, that ran roughly $90,000 a year. So I don't know any family in the province of Ontario that can afford that out of pocket. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. Um, that's roughly $140,000 um, gross, right? Because when we talk about the $90,000 out of pocket, that's, that's after taxes. Right. So you need an, an expendable, roughly $150,000 of income per year in order to, to support your child properly. And I have, not one, met, I have not met one family that was able to do that. Um, 
And if they were, they were not able to sustain it for much more than a year or two. Which probably has a negative effect on the child where they are making progress. Um, but then the, the funding stops and the, the assistance goes away and, you know, yeah. they, their, their development suffers. It, well, it can actually do more harm. Mm. Um, if we start a program with a child and you start this intervention and you have to stop cold turkey, um, a child often regresses. So not only um, are they not further developing and reaching their full potential, the skills that they learned can disappear and any positive behavior can also uh, move backwards. So you, you can actually be doing harm um, by, by doing that. And that's what this government first said they were going to do. And um, when, uh, when Lisa McLeod, who was the first minister of, uh, you know, the new merged ministry with the, with the pro- uh, progressive conservative government, they merged the Ministry of uh, Youth and Children with Community and Social Services. And now it's MCCSS, which is the Ministry of Children, Community and Social Services. Um, So the first minister was Lisa McLeod, and she made an announcement February of 2019, basically destroying the foundation that was already there of the Ontario Autism Program and saying that, um, you know, we're just going to get a subsidy and a subsidy that wouldn't even really help a lot of parents. Children um, five and under would get 20,000. Mm-hmm. And for children with lower needs, that might have been okay. Um, but for a child like mine, you know, a drop in the bucket, like I told you, was $90,000. And that was 15 years ago. Now it's, you know, over $100,000. Um, and children six and older got a subsidy of $5,000. And that, that really wouldn't help much at all unless, you know, all your child needed was maybe some technology or something. If you had a child that had very low needs, it might be okay. But, but honestly, um, how, how is that needs based? It's, mm-hmm. it's not, it's like going to a hospital with a broken arm, you know, here in Canada, where we expect universal healthcare, um, you know, you go to the hospital with a broken arm, you expect them to fix your arm and set it and you walk away with a cast and then you come back and, you know, they follow through until your arm is healed. Um, it would be the equivalent of me going to the hospital with a broken arm and then giving me like a hundred bucks and saying, here, go find a place to uh, to do it and you cover the rest. Uh, you know, it could cost 10 grand, but, you know, here's a hundred bucks for you. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you can go to the art store and buy some paper mache and make your own cast. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> that's, I, that's how the autism community feels. And actually, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, you know, I, I think the government's approach is, and, and I don't know what goes on in the head of Lisa McLeod or any government minister unless they tell me, but. Well, there's, it, there's been two other ministers on the file since. Like, right. there's, there's three ministers in four years. Like, that's, right. that's the level of incompetency. Right. And it makes it harder to do this advocacy because advocacy is also about building relationships with people. And that's a bit hard when the head of the person in charge of the uh, of the uh, portfolio that you're trying to get action from is constantly changing. So you're always having to start again from scratch with somebody new. Yes. Yes. The parliamentary assistant uh, stayed the same across all uh, ministers, but, you know, their staff changed and it's 
it, it, it was very difficult. But to be completely frank, um, this government, I would have to say, is the most opaque of any government I've ever had to deal with. So my relationship um, with the ministers was never good to begin with, especially with McLeod. Then the next minister was Todd Smith, and he he feigned interest, but then was completely absent. And then the final minister was Marilee Fullerton. And, you know, we all kind of know her as uh, the former minister of long-term care and her moniker. And I'm going to maybe get some flack for this, but it's all over Twitter. But her, <laughs> mo- her moniker was minister of death, mm. right? Because, because of all of the carnage that happened in our um, long-term care homes. And although I did have a, re- uh, a relationship with her at first and her staff, um, as of the new year, they completely ghosted me. No responses to emails, texts, nothing. Hmm. Um, so, you know, even even with some modicum of of a relationship, it um, it really was it was really very shallow, and um, this government basically abandoned the community. Mm-hmm. Getting back to their thinking, though, I, and again, I, I don't know for sure, but what it sounds like is they thought, well, for kids with autism, we'll get them early. We'll smother them with, you know, care and access and, and services. And then when they're six, you know, they're, they're kind of on the way and maybe they well, need use less the word help. Fixed. That's not, that's that's, not going to go over well in the community. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. <laughs> I apologize. But, you know, in terms of helping them uh, adapt and, and helping them learn. Um, is probably a better way to put that. Um, to reach their full potential. To reach their full, I like that, reach their full potential. And then the, I guess the presumption was like after they're, they've turned six, they're well on their way because they, we've given this basis. But <laughs> six, I, really? What well, kid is fully <laughs> developed at the age of six? Come on. <laughs> I, I'm not defending the thinking. Um, but it, it also makes me wonder are there instances where kids on the spectrum, sort of need more assistance as they get older. Yes, definitely. Um, and it's, it's, not, it's not a straight line. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it d- depending on life stage, they need more or less support. So my son is 16, he's turning 17 this year. A few years ago, I needed a lot of support during puberty. Mm. Uh, that's, that's a tough time. Um, and, you know, there's also um, an additional um, window of development of neuroplasticity around puberty. So, you know, they pick up a lot. It's a good time to teach them right. um, during puberty as well. So, you know, when they're little, you want to get as much intervention as possible because all of the literature, all of the research you see says early intervention is key. So you want you want to do that. And as they get older, you know, the supports can lessen depending on the child. Um, But then they might increase, like if there was some sort of life event, if there was a trauma, you know, um, their their level of support will increase. And then, of course, puberty is a really, really rough time. Um, And, you know, even as they um, transition into adulthood, they're going to need extra support because, 
you know, the way that our system is set up, we have some supports until our kids are 18. And then it's kind of like falling off a cliff. The supports disappear. And a lot of kids on the spectrum are like, what, where, where, where are all of my extracurriculars? Because, you know, my son, he doesn't have friends, uh, like in the traditional sense. And I have him involved in a lot of um, community programs and, and uh, sports programs, specifically designed for kids with special needs. And he relies on these programs for his socialization. Mm. Um, And when those disappear, that's going to be a very tough thing for him to deal with. And I'm going to need some additional support because I'm a parent. I'm not a therapist. Right. And, And the fact that these, that this government wants to, um, you know, put all the weight on parents is, is ridiculous. They just want to hand off um, everything off to the parents. And I, I understand there are children, we love them and we support them, but we, we're not experts. We, we, you know, we don't, we're not teachers. We're yeah. not therapists. We're not doctors. Um, that's why we have these professionals and we rely on them. I mean, it, it's a reminder too that, uh, there are a lot of different adults with different special needs and uh, the, there are not a lot of programs that address yeah, And our, our kids grow up to be adults with autism, you know, yeah. they don't, they don't grow out of autism. Yeah. It's, it's a lifelong condition. And, and this is the thing about early intervention, which I always try to express without, you know, trying to make it look like our kids are burdens because they're not, right. they're not, but, but they need more support than, than typical uh, kids. Um, so my son, he was diagnosed, um, you know, back then the language was severe. Now people don't use that word. Now it's high needs, low needs. But at that time he was diagnosed with uh, severe autism and the clinician gave me a very grim uh, prognosis. She said, you know, he will likely never speak. Um, he may never be potty trained. He may be in diapers for the rest of his life. And, you know, the most hurtful thing I heard, of course, was um, he may never really recognize you as his mother. Mm. That was, I, you know, I have to say that was the most painful thing I ever heard in my life. I can imagine. Um, but I could see, I could see that he could learn, you know, I, and I could see he was this gentle soul, even though he was this little toddler who had no language and you know didn't respond to his name and um so I never gave up and I did a lot of research and you know it just so happens that my uh background my education is in statistics Mm -hmm. so understanding research is something I do well um so you know I went to the books (laughs) and the learning curve was steep let me tell you but I read that early intervention was critical and these kids can develop and um, they can learn. And so I paid out of pocket. Uh, I, you know, I put his name on the wait list. At that time, the wait list was about two to three years to access funding. You know, I, we took a second mortgage. I cashed in my RSPs. You know, I came from a pl- privileged place because I had these investments right. that, I could, that I could rely on. A lot, of, a lot of families, especially if they had their children younger, um, you know, they, they don't have that option. So those children go without. And 
you know, I understand as a statistician, my son is a sample of one, (laughs) (laughs) but um, he's not the child at all that I was told to expect. But he still has autism and he still has high needs, but he, he has communication. He has language. He's potty trained. He a hundred percent knows me as his mother because he's always asking me to buy him stuff. Mom, can I have this? Can I have that? (laughs) Which is not atypical for a 16 year old boy. (laughs) (laughs) It's, Um, but, but, but the thing is, yeah, because he has these skills and, you know, I think a lot of people outside the community misunderstand that we're looking for some sort of academic support. We're not, we're looking for support for basic life skills. Like my son couldn't feed himself. He couldn't dress himself. He couldn't brush his teeth. Like all these life skills, which, you know, we take for granted. And a lot of typical kids will learn through imitation. Mm-hmm. Kids on the spectrum don't learn that way. They, they have to be taught these skills specifically. And because my son has these skills now, He's going to be able to live much more independently um, as he gets older. And the cost to support him as he gets older will be considerably lower because he doesn't need all of this additional support to help him get dressed, to help him go to the bathroom, to help him eat, you know, all those basic life skills. He's, my son used to run into traffic. Mm. Like that was a life and death situation. I need therapy um, to help me to stop him from doing that like and and now he understands danger like these are all things that allow him to live in our world um and you know he's going to be able to live much more independently as a result and these kids that are going without their level of support is going to be so much higher because they don't have these skills and it's actually going to end up costing way more in the long run to support them throughout their lifetime than it would have if we did this. And I think of it as an investment and it truly is. If we make this investment while they're young, it's going to pay off considerably exponentially. It's the same as any other health concern. Um, whereas you, you, you sort of deal with it early. It, it, it you, you, there's, there isn't, again, not that you want to consider these children a burden, but um, the less expensive, the less of an expense and, and the less that they have to deal with as they get older um, that, you know, and, and to, to your point too, granted your son is a sample size of one, as you said, but it shows just how much uncertainty there is, um, you know, from, from when your son is diagnosed to what the doctor tells you to expect to where you are on the brink of his 17th birthday and all of those things you've, you've, you, you meant you kind of, it sounds like you kind of went down the checklist and were able to take these things. I realize it's not that simple. It's not, it's not that simple. And as a, as a mother, you always feel like you could have done more. Right. Um, But you know, one of the reasons I, uh, I went into advocacy is because I saw the effect that it had on my son. And I saw that, you know, his quality of life is so much better and, He's so, he's so he's so he's a happy kid. When he was young, he was always crying, and I never understood why because he was he couldn't express himself. Right. But now he has communication, and he can express himself, and he's just this happy, loving, uh, like and and you know they say that kids with autism don't have empathy. Mm. Horse poo poo. 
<laughs> I think my son is the most empathetic person I've ever met in my life. He just, he cares about people. And, um, you know, because he has these life skills, like I'm sending him to summer camp this, this summer for six weeks. Wow. Because he has these skills, he can go. And, and he wants to go and he's going to have an amazing time. And, and he's thrilled about it. And of course, as a mom, you're happy when your child is happy, right? Um, so I went into advocacy because I saw that, you know, my son, he's this happy kid and he's, it's made such a huge effect on his life and his quality of life has so drastically improved. And, you know, I was able to fight for him and I fought hard. I'm a very, you know, assertive mom. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I realized, you know, not every mom can do what I did or not every right. parent or caregiver. Um, and it's no fault of their own, you know, uh, new Canadians or, you know, families uh, with, multi with, you know, blended um, families with multiple children and, um, or, you know, families uh, that are struggling just to put food on the table, you know, they, they don't have the resources to do what I did. Um, and it's, it's just the, the inequity there, just because my son had a parent that could fight for him, right. doesn't mean that he's any more deserving than any other child. And that's why I went into advocacy, because these children deserve everything that my my son had access to and more. Um, and the system is set up so that, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get. Let me throw this at you is, you know, trying to support kids with autism, like, is it too complicated for the government? You know, because again, we're talking about kids with, you know, you have 10 kids with autism at a school, you're talking about 10 kids with 10 vastly different needs. Government likes simple, likes you know, if we can catch 97%, that's, uh, that's good. Um, but if you're talking about dealing with 100% of the kids that need 100% different uh, needs and, and supports and teachers and, and all of this stuff, you know, is the, you know, is, is the challenge too big for like, is it too big for government to wrap its head around, I guess? <laughs> well, the current government, yes. <laughs> I'm just gonna throw that out there. Yeah, this sure. I have never seen a greater level of incompetency than with the current uh, progressive conservative government. How people are still choosing to vote for them uh, boggles my mind. Um, but honestly, yes, it it is a very complicated file. It is it is very complicated to support um, our children because you know, as as you said, and I mentioned before you know, all our kids have very vastly different uh, needs. Um, but, you know, the previous government, the, the previous liberal government, um, they put in a program which wasn't perfect. And the thing is, like, we're not expecting perfection. And mm. I know you said, you know, if we get 97%, that's great. We, and honestly, if, if we were able to do that, I would be happy. Mm. There, there are always going to be some kids that, are not going to be able to be um, supported by mm. the system. And, you know, that's why we need an additional program for urgent needs or for crisis care or that kind of thing. And that, that will take care of, you know, the, the few percent of kids that um, will not be supported. But um, 
you know, over the past four years, give or take, um, the level of support was zero percent. So, right. So is, is it complicated? Yes. Is it something that a government should, should find impossible? No, not at all. Um, you know, we had a needs-based program in place. Uh, it needed completion because the Liberals um, developed this program close to the election four years ago, um, and they didn't get a chance to complete it. And I can tell you right now, um, if the PC government came in and worked on that program and fixed it and made it so that it was functioning better, the community would have hailed them as heroes. Mm -hmm. Because as an advocate, I'm nonpartisan. I will support whatever government supports our children. I don't care about their, well, I do care. But at the end of the day, <laughs> I, I, I tend to be a single issue voter. Right. My main concern is um, how they're dealing with our children and, you know, on a bigger scale, how they're dealing with the vulnerable um, population in, in our province. Um, and so if this PC government, when they, when they took office, if they came in, and fixed the old uh, liberal program and made it run smoother, um, we would have hailed them as heroes. But instead, they decided to come in and demolish the program without having anything else in place other than the subsidies, which was not useful for parents, mm -hmm. most parents. Um, and as a result, they, they turned into monsters. They could have been heroes, but uh, instead they chose to be monsters. And, you know, the thing is, if they wanted a new program, and, you know, the only reason I can think of that they destroyed the old program was because it was a liberal program. Right. There was no other good reason that I could find. Um, but if they wanted to develop a new program, a new progressive conservative government, they should have left the other program running, mm. developed a new program concurrently. And once the new program was developed, start transitioning the kids from the old program into the new program. That way, there right. would have been much fewer gaps in service. But instead, they bulldozed the program and they created, you know, an additional four-year wait on top of the two to three-year wait that existed in the past. So some kids have been waiting up to like seven years now. And they created a bottleneck of children who have received little to no support. And so now we have an entire generation of children with autism that are not gonna reach their full potential, are not going to have the skills to live independently. Um, and like I said earlier, it's gonna end up costing us all so much more in the long run. These, when these kids, you know, stop being kids and become adults, the system isn't prepared for the level right. of support they're going to need. And it's, it's not that far into the future. So as a single issue voter, as you said, um, is, is any party, I mean, big or small, you know, running with a, an agenda that uh, you and other parents with children with autism can get behind? Well, the, um, the liberals, uh, released their platform. I actually did a press conference with them 
um, at the beginning of April, because April is, uh, well, April 2nd is World Autism uh, Awareness Day, and we consider April kind of uh, World Aut um, Autism Awareness Month. Um, so at the beginning of April, you know, we did this uh, World Autism Day, um, Action Day, we all went down to Queen's Park. Um, we sat in question period, a few of us, not me, <laughs> but a few <laughs> of our community got kicked out because, you know, Marilee Fullerton was answering some questions and it was live. Yeah, got rowdy. Well, she, you know, it, it wasn't the <laughs> truth. And so a few people in the, uh, um, uh, what is it called? Gallery. Uh, gallery, thank you. In the <laughs> galleries uh, started screaming, you know, and uh, it, it was not a good look on the PCs. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, so the liberals, you know, have a program uh, or a platform rather, um, you know, even though I work, I work with both the liberals and the NDP, um, you know, the NDP is the official opposition. Um, even though they both have put out platforms, um, they're not going to like this. <laughs> they're, they're, they're a little too bare bones and they're a little too vague. Um, I would love to see more. Um, but the truth of the matter is either of those uh, platforms is better than what the PCs have. Mm. But I, I really wish that they would, um, you know, elucidate what, what, um, what they've already put out there. And I, you know, I work closely with the NDP um, as well. And I, I've made that very clear to them. Like we need more. You can't right. just put out, you know, a single sentence in the platform. We, we need a plank. You need to break out um, specific things that you, you want to do with the, with, with the Ontario autism program. But I think the one thing that um, they both agree, and uh, it's what, you know, what I mentioned before, the PC government should have done. And that is, you know, the, the PC government has developed a new program, which they're calling needs-based. It's not. Mm -hmm. um, but it's better than, you know, the five and $20,000 subsidy payments. So it's something. Um, so they, at least they both understand that the foundation for that program is in place and they need to leave it. Uh, if they want to develop a new program, they can do it concurrently while kids are getting access to service. It may not be, you know, fully needs-based. They may not be getting 100% of what they need, but it's still better than getting 0% of what they need. This is not a program you can just throw money at. Like just saying like, we're going to invest X amount of dollars in for, for kids with autism. That's that's not enough. That's not enough specificity for parents. No. And, and the thing is like, people also don't understand. We don't fight. We're not fighting for more money. Right. We have a budget in place. And, you know, that's the one thing that this current government did well. Um, the previous government for the Ontario autism program was roughly 300 million. And the PCs came in, you know, they put in this five twenty thousand dollars uh, one size fits all plan the community was in an uproar. We were outraged, protests on the front lawn of Queens Park. They, we, we actually, you know, I proudly say this, the Ontario Autism Coalition is the first and probably one of the only advocacy organizations that made this current government stutter. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and, and Doug Ford, uh, he did an interview uh, after his first year as premier 
he was asked if he could do one thing over again, he actually said the autism file. So he knew this government knows they screwed up. Um, and so they doubled the budget to 600 million. And to be completely honest, we don't even have the capacity in the province to service all the children um, to spend this full $600 million. So the budget is fine as it is. We're not asking for more money. It's not underfunded. Right. We're, we want this money. Well, we want the money spent fully because even though, um, you know, four doubled the budget, they continued to underspend. Like in the first year, they didn't spend almost one third of it. And then they continued to underspend because there's no program in place. So there's nothing to spend the money on. Um, right. And on top of that, they've added all this additional bureaucracy, which um, is ironic for a conservative government. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I guess it goes with that whole gravy train idea. Mm -hmm. um, so they added this whole level of bureaucracy and the, and the budget is going to administration and bureaucracy. And we're fighting for this money to just be spent on therapy on our children. So it's not about throwing money. It's about developing a functioning uh, needs-based program uh, where the money is spent appropriately on our children. Which I'll just say again, is the hard part. Yes. <laughs> yes. But we were getting there. Right. We were getting there. I, you know, I was so happy with where we were four years ago. <laughs> of course, in between then and now, um, there was a global pandemic. Um, yes. We were talking about trauma earlier and how that can, you know, throw up another barrier for kids with autism. Um, how has the pandemic changed their lives um, for for the better, for the worse, for the, I don't, you know, you you tell yeah, me. So it's 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 been a mix. It's yeah. been a mix. Um, I know for some kids on the spectrum, it was actually um, beneficial. Uh, not going into school um, because, you know, some kids on the spectrum in terms of intelligence, they, they're average to above average intelligence, but they, they struggle um, with socialization and, you know, they, some, some struggle with bullying and, you know, that sort of thing. So online learning was wonderful for those, for that group of children. They didn't have to deal with their social anxiety and they were able to focus on their academics, which, which they enjoyed. So for those kids, um, you know, it was okay. Um, for, for other kids like my son, who has higher needs, um, like he's also uh, diagnosed with a developmental uh, delay, uh, online learning, he wasn't getting anything through it. Mm. Uh, it you know, it didn't, um, it didn't resonate with him. And, you know, a lot of kids on the spectrum have a hard time reading uh, body language and social cues and it's hard enough in person, like it has to be very big in order for my son to receive it. But through a screen, it was nearly impossible. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, he relies on his uh, extracurricular activities for socialization. And with that gone, he was a really, and he's an only child on top of that. Mm -hmm. um, so he was really lonely and it, it was really distressing for him, like not being able to see family and not being able to go out into the community. Um, and it, he didn't, you know, for any child, really, 
to explain what a virus is, is difficult. It's a very abstract kind of thing. Until you get older, you understand a little bit. But any, I still know adults that don't fully understand as well, right? Yes, <laughs> I've um, met a few. Yeah. <laughs> and so trying to explain to him, you know, there's a virus and you can get sick. Um, it just, it added this level of anxiety that I had never seen because, you know, he was scared uh, all the time of being out. And he's like, and, you know, and trying to get him to wear a mask. A lot of kids on the spectrum um, have sensory issues. They don't like things touching their face. And my son hates things touching his ears. So, mm -hmm. you know, the mask with the loops around the ears was a no go. <laughs> but but, you, but I couldn't take them out without one, right? Like, mm -hmm. So even just growing grocery shopping was, was a struggle. Um, so it, it, was, it, was, it was very difficult. Um, but, you know, for some kids uh, and adults, um, you know, I heard from some that, you know, this is the way they've been living life for years anyway. So it wasn't a big change for them. Um, but I think, you know, I think one of the greatest impacts um, the pandemic had on the Ontario Autism Program was um, the decimation of capacity. Right. So, right. you know, when the destruction of the program was announced uh, in early 2019, um, the capacity started to decrease immediately because professionals in the field were like um, thinking to themselves, we don't have a future here. If we can't get paid to, um, you know, provide this therapy to these children, then, you know, this is not uh, a future for, for, for me to stay in. So a lot of therapists either left the province or they shut down their business and looked uh, at another avenue of, um, you know, employment. Um, so that started right away. Also, uh, certain college programs uh, cut cut the um, autism support programs. So we lost therapists, like current therapists, but we also lost future therapists going into the field. So capacity was already dwindling. Um, but then, you know, we had the pandemic. And that just exacerbated everything. So not only, you know, uh, were therapy centers closing their doors because they weren't funded, um, but children couldn't come in person. And a lot of therapy, small, especially the smaller ones, uh, they had to shut their doors because they just, they just didn't have the business, right? Like at the end of the day, um, yes, it's, it's a medical intervention, but the people that run the therapy centers, this is their livelihood. This mm -hmm. is their business. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they also need to, you know, put food on their table and a roof over their head. So they had to look at other ways of making money. So now as a result, um, you know, we have this huge wait list to access funding, but now there's a huge wait list just to find a therapy center that can treat your child. Right. Maybe to wrap things up, you can talk a bit about how the pandemic has sort of affected advocacy efforts, because one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you um, was because it felt like this issue after having all of this, you know, positive forward momentum 
in 2019. It, it feels like it just fell completely off the map with the pandemic, and maybe that's understandable. But how has another health crisis, you know, uh, you know, gotten the way of of your continued advocacy and 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 the the coalition's uh, work to to make this issue front and center? Yeah, it, it's been a struggle. I'm just going to correct one thing sure, uh, sure. that you just said. Um, this government uh, delayed the Ontario Autism Program before the pandemic. Right. So they try to use the pandemic as a, an excuse. They can't. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not. They, they started this damage before the pandemic. So this government can't use that um, to cover up their incompetency. I just want to make that clear. Sure. <laughs> but in <laughs> in terms of our advocacy, you know, it's it's so sad because, like I said, four years ago, I was happy with where we were. Um, and, you know, the Ontario Autism Program uh, only supports uh, children. It, it, it's up to the age of 18. And so I thought we were in a pretty good place. You know, the, the program that was in place was truly needs based. Um, it needed some tweaks. And I thought we can work on that uh, with the government. It's, it's not a big job, like the big part is done. And I thought how wonderful we can start focusing on adult issues. Mm. Well, we haven't been able to, to touch adult issues at all because of this huge mess that we had to go back to and, and fix and, and we're, it's still not even close to, to being um, something that uh, the community um, that will benefit the community. Um, so now, uh, you know, we're still, we're still struggling with, um, with adults on the spectrum. Um, and unfortunately we, all of our resources have been put into the Ontario autism program because you know, like I said, early intervention is critical. And, you know, we have over 50,000 children on the wait list waiting to access support services. Um, and this affects their entire quality of life. So that's, that's where we had to focus our resources. Can you imagine the capacity of the Sky Dome is like 47 or 48,000. Mm-hmm. So there are more children waiting for support that, that can that then can fit in the sky dome. Right. Isn't that insane? When this government uh, took power, there was about 23,000 on the wait list. So they more than doubled it. Um, And in terms of advocacy, uh, the way that I normally did things, and I think the thing that was most effective, um, you know, I I had a little tour. I had a little, you know, horse and (laughs) pony show. I went to all the MPP's (laughs) offices um, and I took I took professionals, I took, you know, ABA professionals with me to talk about not only, you know, the parent perspective, but these are conservatives. So they want to know the small business perspective, mm. you know, the um, as well as the scientific perspective from from uh, a clinician. And when you're in person, you can get your message across and, you know, you can you can see if they're paying attention and, and you you can bring, you can bring your child with you. You know, sometimes that's effective as well. Um, and with, um, with the pandemic, everything became virtual and advocacy just became less effective because 
you know, if they don't want to have a Zoom with you, they don't have to. Right. It's not like you're showing up in their office. If, if you're there, they're going to meet you no matter what. Even if they don't want to see you, they're going to see you. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's there kind of a... Person. There's a social pressure of, you know, someone waiting in your office uh, that that's just not the same if someone's in the, the Zoom waiting room. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you one story. I showed up at this one MPP's office and I didn't have an appointment. I had a phone call with him a few weeks prior. And I, I you know, I said, you know, I'd like some responses and I'll, up, I'll, um, I'll follow up in two weeks. And they didn't follow up with me. So two weeks later, I just showed up in the office. I was like, hi, I'm here. I didn't hear back. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the staff is like, oh, no, no, he's busy. He's busy. And I said, that's cool. And I sat down. I was like, oh, wait. <laughs> so there I am sitting in the office. Just wait. And eventually, you know, I, I did get a meeting. Mm -hmm. um, but that kind of tactic, you can't do that virtually. Right. And if, if they don't want to answer your calls or your emails, they don't have to because there's not much you can do about it, you know, other than, um, you know, trying to reach out to media. But that was also another struggle right. with the pandemic. We had a good amount of coverage um, before the pandemic when, you know, the government, and that was one of the reasons we were able to make this government stutter because we had such great media coverage. Um, but once the pandemic hit, you know, media was all about the pa the pandemic, about COVID. And, you know, I, understandably, but it left us out in the cold. Yeah. So what happens June 3rd? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, our advocacy doesn't stop regardless of who um, wins the election. Um, and like I said, we're nonpartisan. Um, my hope, this is my hope, this is not the Ontario Autism Coalition, uh, because like I said, we are nonpartisan. Mm -hmm. uh, but my hope is at the very least, we do not get a PC majority. Um, so if we get a PC minority, we'll work with that. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, we work closely with the Liberals and the NDP um, and whoever is the official opposition uh, we will work closely with them if the PCs are in power. Um, you know, if it's another government in power, we will work closely with them as we have continued over the last um, 17 years. You know, the OAC was formed in 2005. Funny little story. It was formed uh, to help develop autism services with the intention of uh, disbanding within a few years. <laughs> uh, because you know we're like oh you know it'll get fixed and everything will be fine here we are in 2022 and the battle is even like harder than it was in 2005 right sad really yeah um, but yeah no the advocacy doesn't stop we will continue to work um with whatever government is in power um but like i said i'm hoping at the very least the PC if the pcs are elected it will be a minority it, it will give us a little bit more leverage um, if, if it is a PC majority again, uh, which I, I'm not looking forward to, if that happens, um, you know, we have not been super kind to the PCs, mm -hmm. especially over the last six months or so where we were like, we just felt abandoned and we felt like we had nothing left to lose. Cause we always try to maintain a very civil 
uh, working relationship with whatever government is in power. But the last six months or so, we just we kind of gave up on that. Mm. So we don't have the best relationship with the current government. Um, so if they are the majority, uh, we'll be back out on the lawn. We'll be back out, you know, uh, in front of the MPP's offices. Um, and we'll, we'll be out screaming, you know, on the news again. Our kids need support. And the thing is also like um, one question that I was asked is like, why would parents care who don't have a kid uh, right. on the spectrum? And the truth is our kids um, are not supported well at schools. Uh, they're just not. And it's not that, no slight against the teachers. The teachers are not trained. It's not their job. Um, you know, and a lot of schools don't have enough support uh, for kids with special needs. And what happens is um, our kids are going to school because they don't have support outside of school. And all the resources, teachers um, especially, are, um, you know, being focused on our children. So typical children, and I know this sounds bad, yeah. uh, but typical children are not getting the level of education that they could be if our kids were properly supported. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the schools don't have the resources and that that's a whole other, that's a whole other advocacy route that, uh, that people are working on. Yeah. The the kids who who do not have autism have uh, their own needs as well. Um, Just uh, they, they, their needs, they, they have a much more, I guess, common needs denominator than the kids with autism but they 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 do need the time and attention of teachers too yeah and you know like like kids on the spectrum um typical kids are all unique as well sure you know some need a little extra support some need a little less support um you know and teachers teachers are trained uh to to support those kids but they're they're not trained to support a like a kid like mine um but if my child is in the classroom with these children, my, my son is going to get a lot more attention. Right. Just because, you know, he, he, he uh, wanders, he gets up from his seat. He, he needs, he needs a, a lot more um, verbal coaching. Um, you know, and then there are some kids, which especially younger kids who are runners, you know, they, there needs to be emergency protocols uh, in place uh, that takes up a lot of resources. Some kids are aggressive, right? They hurt themselves, or and some kids are, are they hurt others, and some kids are self injurious, they hurt themselves. Um, some of those kids need one on one support, um, and those those are resources that uh, the school has to pay for, right? And and the that's those are resources that are being siphoned away. From from the rest of the students, yeah, it just it's it kind of breaks your heart a little. And um, my niece, um, she she's not on the spectrum, but she does she has special needs, and uh, I have seen how she's grown and flourished with the assistance of of her um, her educational support worker, mm-hmm. and um, it, it you know I think. I think you don't have to have a kid to to want that for every kid, no matter what their need is to 
to, to that they, they can be the best that they want to be and the best that their parents want them well, to be. Well, you'd hope. Yeah. You'd hope. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, uh, <laughs> let's wrap up before we get too mushy. Uh, Angela Brand, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. I hope your son enjoys uh, summer camp. Uh, it sounds like uh, it's going to be I, a it's good a summer. It's a little bit more for me than for him, <laughs> but don't tell him that. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be the best summer ever, I think, for you guys. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you so much for having me. And once again, that was Angela Brandt. If you want to learn more about the Ontario Autism Coalition, you can visit their website at ontarioautismcoalition.com. That is ontarioautismcoalition, all one word, dot com. If you would like to follow their advocacy or lend your support to the cause, you can use the hashtag 50KIsNotOkay on social media. And if you're interested in hearing from the local candidates, we are hosting all the Guelph candidates over on Open Sources Guelph, and it's going to be a very busy couple of weeks with the election campaign uh, winding down in its second half. But you can hear those interviews Thursday at 5 p.m. on CFRU, or you can download the podcast version of Open Sources every Monday on this feed. You can also hear from the candidates running in Wellington Halton Hills, and that's on Saturdays on the Wellington Halton Hills Politicast, which you can also get on this feed. But for now, that's it for the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio, out of the University of Guelph. And to learn more about CFRU, go to CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel you will get that aforementioned episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me personally at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram, and you can send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And finally, for all the latest local political news, check out GuelphPolitico.ca, where we will have a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you this time and next week. And until then, well, we'll see you next time. Um, um.